Welcome to IntelliKey Leadership Stories, a series of unique interviews with successful people in many fields. Leaders who are innovating, building, and guiding organizations with a higher vision. How they put their values into practice to achieve the full potential of themselves and their organizations. Now, here's your host for IntelliKey Leadership Stories, Kirsten Gouldy and Mark Stenson. Hi, everyone. This is Kirsten Gouldy coming to you with Dr. James Doty today. We're so excited to have discussions with him. This is our podcast, IntelliKey Leadership Stories. I am an intuitive advisor, professional coach, and consultant, and I also am the CEO of Pure IntelliKey, and my co-host is with me today. Well, hi, everybody. It's Mark Stenson, and I'm president of Bioscience Bridge. But uh, mainly, Kirsten, uh, today, this podcast, uh, we've really been anticipating our, our discussion with uh, Dr. Doty. Uh, Jim, welcome to the program. We're really glad to have you. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you uh, as we're all in uh, shelter in place. Yeah, so, well, to, to say thanks for taking the time, you know, on the one hand, uh, we were talking about having all the time in the world. But uh, we find ourselves on these interviews and Zoom meetings more and more, don't we? Uh, yes. I, but, you know, on the one uh, hand, I mean, it's not a bad thing, but it also makes us recognize how much we can do uh, without having to go into the office. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Well, by way of background for our listeners, uh, Dr. James Doty is the founder and director of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education at Stanford University. Uh, even the Dalai Lama is one of the founding benefactors of this organization. In addition, uh, Dr. Doty is a professor in the Department of Neurosurgery at Stanford University School of Medicine. He is a practicing neurosurgeon. Uh, he's also an inventor, an entrepreneur, a philanthropist. And uh, I, I learned about Dr. Doty as the author of this New York Times bestseller, into the magic shop, a neurosurgeon's quest to discover the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Uh, it's now been translated into 36 or more languages. It's uh, every time I see on Instagram, we have a new language it's being uh, translated into. So it's just a terrific book. So I guess, uh, Dr. Doty, we really can't start uh, any discussion about, uh, you know, uh, clinical and uh, neurosurgery and the, how the heart and the brain but first, without asking how your colleagues in the hospital and in the medical school are, are managing and their resilience in this difficult time, can you relate a little bit about what's going on in your world? Well, in some ways, um, Stanford and other hospitals we're affiliated with actually are doing okay. The people who are really in the trenches are the pulmonologists, the intensivists, the internal medicine doctors, the family medicine doctors. And uh, certainly, I think that uh, it has been a burden. Uh, I think, though, the nature of the people who go into these fields uh, understand that um, their job is to save lives and to do, if necessary, to work far and above what's expected. And that's the nature of being a professional. Uh, and I commend them. Uh, for me, as a neurosurgeon, uh, 
fortunately, it has not gotten to the point where uh, they have called in uh, surgeons to uh, do this. To be bluntly honest with you, we're not that helpful in this type of a situation. Um, so for me, I'm not able to do elective surgery and uh, I'm doing telemedicine for patients. Um, but for my colleagues in those other uh, fields, yes, they're stressed, but they have incredible resilience. It is difficult for some, but fortunately here in Northern California at Stanford, uh, it is not as bad as certainly places like New York and other places. So in some ways uh, we're very blessed, uh, but it remains to be seen uh, where this is going to go in the uh, near future here it could get profoundly worse. And then of course, I and other of my colleagues will uh, uh, step up to the plate as necessary to uh, support our colleagues. Yes, well, thanks for that update. You know, and, and thinking about your particular focus and your center, this compassion and altruism, I mean, it, it couldn't be more in the spotlight right now. Uh, what, what, what do you see uh, as either improvements or continued challenges in this area of compassion, uh, both for the patients and, and of course, for the providers? Well, certainly, uh, the very nature of being a physician uh, is to be compassionate. Uh, sometimes with our technologically driven uh, medical uh, uh, um, uh, conglomerate in the United States, uh, oftentimes it gets lost uh, behind all the technology. But I tell uh, my trainees uh, that um, your success, even as a neurosurgeon, uh, I attribute as much to being kind and compassionate uh, as to all the technology in the world. You know, when someone acts with kindness um, to another individual, versus treating them just like a disease, it actually has a profound positive effect uh, on their physiology. Because if you're kind, if you're caring, what happens is it shifts their fear mode, uh, which has a lot of negative physiologic effects, uh, to uh, what we call their parasympathetic nervous system, that rest and digest system. And if you do surgery or other medical interventions on a person who is calm, relaxed, feels comfortable, uh, their immune system is boosted, they heal faster, they're in the hospital less time. It has a very, very uh, positive effect on outcomes. Uh, so not only, frankly, uh, does it uh, feel better to connect on that level with patients, but it actually has a very positive uh, documented uh, effect on their healing. So well, that's great. Um, and, and I'm curious, question. you know, uh, oftentimes surgeons, you know, this wouldn't surprise you to know, they don't always have the uh, image of being the most compassionate uh, bedside manner uh, <laughs> of all the specialties. But I mean, is compassion something that can be taught, you know, in your role in medical school? You know, sure. as a curriculum, you know, can it be taught? Yes. Uh, getting back to your other statement, I, I think you're right. Unfortunately, uh, medical schools uh, have not placed uh, being a kind, compassionate, caring human being 
at the top of the list for uh, criteria for acceptance. You know, unfortunately uh, and sadly, the primary driver is academic performance. And while that is important, uh, there is no documented evidence that having a 4.0 grade point average uh, makes you a better doctor. Uh, certainly having an above average level of intelligence is important, but as you alluded to, there are individuals who are not particularly kind or compassionate. And in fact, even the drivers, their motivators of becoming physicians are not necessarily to care for the patient, uh, but uh, job security and financial reward. And uh, so, uh, you know, I think that's a challenge, but I think now with all the evidence we see that uh, a number of medical schools are including that aspect. The other thing you have to remember oftentimes too is the nature of being a surgeon results in a lot of stress and seeing horrible tragedy. And for many people, by being, if you will, separated from that, that is the only thing that allows them to function. And sadly, that results in them often seeming brusque or non-communicative. Uh, and uh, that for some, that's a, uh, a mechanism to survive. I've been fortunate in that um, I have no problem holding, hugging a patient or their loved ones or crying with them, but I'm still able to do my job. But that flexibility in terms of emotional state, I think, uh, can be challenging uh, for a number of people. So I have a question for you, um, because I love what we're talking about. We're actually talking about emotional intelligence rather than academic intelligence, right? And you're pointing to scientific evidence that steps into my favorite world, the metaphysical world, right? Which ties to your magic shop and some of what um, your teachings are. How do you see this expression working through COVID-19? right? Because of kindness and compassion amongst all of our first liners, second liners, relationships, parents, the more kindness and compassion we have, it stands to reason that it would translate into higher immune systems. I mean, how do you see this COVID-19 helping support possibly a new way coming out of this? Well, I don't think there's any question that when one has the right mental attitude, and is able to put themselves in this state of openness and connection, which is what happens when your parasympathetic nervous system uh, is engaged, that it has a positive effect on your physiology. We know that uh, inflammation is associated with a large number of disease. And when someone is in that state, uh, the production of inflammatory proteins has decreased, their immune system's boosted, their cardiac functions improve. And in fact, there's a, excuse me, there's a body of evidence that demonstrates that when one is in this state, it has more benefit to health than being at your ideal body weight and uh, exercise. So there is no question that the mind, if you will, has a profound, profound power to affect uh, you both in a positive way and potentially in a negative way. Uh, so I think that is a given from a science perspective 
at this point. Uh, Mark, you asked a question earlier, can you train compassion? Uh, yes, for the vast majority of people. Certainly there's a subset of people, uh, uh, sociopaths and psychopaths, who this is not possible. Many of those people actually have a, phys uh, a, a, a physical uh, abnormality in their brain uh, that stops that connection uh, between empathy or at least the normal response to seeing another suffering, uh, which for most people results in a desire to alleviate that suffering. So uh, the vast majority of people uh, can improve their compassion, if you will. Uh, I use the analogy as an example. When we see world-class athletes, what I tell people is that for you and I, it's probably impossible no matter when we started to get to that level because those individuals have combined their genetic predisposition with their interest. And that's why they're able to be outliers and perform. The same is true of compassion. Each of us has a genetic predisposition. Most of us uh, have not exercised that muscle to get maximal performance. And so I think, and in fact, we have developed at Stanford a compassion cultivation training program that's used throughout the world and that we have studied and has demonstrated that uh, using this program and these techniques, one can not only be more compassionate to themselves, this idea of self-compassion, not beating yourself up, but it also increases your uh, uh, ability to see the world in a different way and understand that everyone is suffering and being more compassionate to them. That's excellent. And as you think about those exercises, I'm very curious about the practices. Uh, you know, what, what would a person do to stretch that muscle, you know, and to, uh, you know, whether it's uh, meditation, whether it's more personal interaction, uh, are there any kind of biofeedback, uh, any other kind of structural things to work on the brain? What would some of those exercises look like? Well, I think uh, they're all of those, uh, as we learn more and more about how the brain works and how to um, create at a subconscious level that intention. Uh, as an example, simply uh, doing a breathing exercise while you're sitting and slowly breathing in over a count of five and then releasing, that in and of itself forces you to shift uh, uh, your uh, tone of the vagus nerve to increase and that shifts you from the sympathetic uh, innervation and stimulation, which is our flight, fight, or freeze response, to the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the rest and digest system, which is one where you have a sense of calmness, you have access to your executive uh, control areas, you have uh, more discernment in how you view the world, you're much more open, you're much more connected. But as you also mentioned, I mean, frankly, simply doing acts towards others, number one, gets you out of your head of being hypercritical, uh, but it also uh, actually increases the metabolism in our reward centers because as a species, uh, we are wired to care. When we evolved uh, from... Um, uh, as nuclear families... Uh, uh, our offspring, unlike others, don't uh, run off into the forest. Uh, they have to be cared for for well over a decade, decade and a half. 
uh, or longer, and that requires an immense amount of investment in time, energy, and resources. Well, why would you do that? Uh, obviously, it allows for uh, propagation of our species and uh, keeping our genes alive, but the reason is uh, that when you care for that other, you're rewarded. And uh, there's a hormone uh, called oxytocin, or the love or connection hormone, that uh, is released in those types of situations, as well as other hormones. So this idea of connecting and caring actually has been with us and is a key part of our survival as a species uh, for literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. So as we evolve to hunter-gatherer tribes, this ability to intuit when someone is suffering, and that's by facial expression, voice intonation, body habitus, even smell, uh, was also critical. Because if someone in your tribe or group did not do their job, then they put the entire group at risk. So your ability to intuit another's emotional state was critically important to your survival as well. And remember, until six to 8,000 years ago, our primary mode of survival um, was in groups of uh, 10 to 50. So not too long ago. So question for you, how does that translate? We're not in a tribe of 10 to 50 anymore. And yet that premise is still so incredibly true. We're exposed at the moment to separation, right? But we've been separated for a long time, right? So the illusion has just opened up, right? As a society, we've been individualized rather than collectivized. So how do you see this, you know, how do you move it forward in today's society, right? There is a real gain or a perceived gain for individualism, and, but yet our very survival stems from coming together. Well, I think this statement about individualism is a false notion, and it's a convenient one for the United States. Right. The narrative that uh, rugged individualism is what made America, and that if you haven't succeeded, it's your own fault. Right. And that is a false narrative. It is a construct uh, created by the haves uh, to justify uh, uh, not caring for the other. And uh, it's very self-serving. Uh, I would suggest to you uh, that there is not a single individual who has accomplished anything without the support, caring, nurturing of another human being or many human beings. Agreed. Additionally, uh, in America, as well as other parts of the world, especially those who have unrestrained capitalism, uh, there is this notion that... Uh, Wow, uh, you know, the reason I made it is because it was all about me and I did it. And uh, the fact of the matter is there are a number of parts of our infrastructure that uh, allow some groups to succeed and others not. As an example, uh, we have institutionalized racism. Uh, we have uh, a system that propagates poverty. We have a system that uh, discriminates against large swaths of the population. We have a group of people who are at the very top of the food chain in terms of socioeconomic class, if you will, uh, those who are worth hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. And how is it possible for that subset of people every year to make 15, 20, 30, 50% or 100% on their money 
while the average person is making three to 5%. And the reason is because uh, they have a system that allows them to have inside uh, information, uh, the ability to manipulate, the ability to uh, influence politicians. And so it's like being uh, on a football field as an example, and you're running a race. And you have this line of people, and on one side of that, uh, at the start of that football field, you have all these obstacles going all the way to to the finish line, right? Mm -hmm. Yet there's a subgroup of people, when the bell goes off, there are no obstacles for them, and they're able to run to the end and cross the finish line and say, I won. See? Why can't you do it? The reason they can't do it is because the system is set up against them. Now, as an example, I, I mean, oftentimes people say, well, Jim, look at your own background. You came from poverty. You're on public assistance your whole life. Your father was an alcoholic. Your mother was an invalid. She was depressed, attempted suicide. You had no resources, no mentors, no access. And all of that is true. But I am a one in a million story. Mm. And Using me as an example to justify uh, this notion that everyone can make it is false. Most of the people I knew when I grew up in that situation did not make it. Mm -hmm. They were not able to go to college. Uh, They ended up oftentimes on drugs. You know, when you're in pain, when you have despair, when you have hopelessness, uh, you uh, assuage that pain uh, through drugs or alcohol. And uh, you also have a sense of failure, uh, that you're not important. And uh, it's not true. There are many, many extraordinary, brilliant people I grew up with as a child who, because of that situation, never had the opportunity to demonstrate uh, their potential. And that's what's so sad. And the thing is that people talk about, well, there's not enough to go around. Well, that's a lie. Mm-hmm. It's completely a false narrative. There is plenty to go around. Mm-hmm. You know, who needs a $560 million yacht? Right. Who needs 10 homes? You That's know, you right. just saw Bill Gates just bought a $43 million mansion, which is, of course, one of innumerable number of homes he has. And don't get me wrong, Bill Gates is doing amazing things in the world. But a, a, another $43 million mansion? Uh, and so, you know, you look at this and... What could that $43 million have done? Couldn't you rent a mansion since you're only there maybe two or three days a year? And Mm -hmm. and you see these people get so uh, uh, lost in their right to spend their money. But the fact of the matter is, if you look what has happened over the last 30 or 40 years, when there's been immense profit in corporations, has that gone to the people who've been making the money, Mm -hmm. the worker? Absolutely not. It's gone into the pockets of the board members. It's gone into the pockets of the executives and it has not trickled down and you will never see it trickle down. You know, Tolstoy made a statement one time and I'll paraphrase since I can't remember it exactly. He said, there is a man on your back choking you. He repeatedly states he sympathizes with your situation but at no time does he offer to stop choking you and get off your back. That is the situation that we're in. And and when when you see this pontificating at Davos and other places about how 
Uh, they're trying to help the world. These are the exact people. That person is on your back. He's choking you, but he's really sympathetic. And the notion of these people is as follows. They will take you to the point where you are barely surviving, and then they'll back off one notch. That mm-hmm. has been the nature of capitalism that we have seen uh, certainly in America the last number of years. Mm-hmm. How is it even possible, as an example, that we have a, a, a minimum wage that, you know, in the 50s, a minimum wage, you could rent an apartment, you could feed your family of four, and it was okay. Effectively, that number has not changed in the last uh, multiple decades. If one looked at simply inflation, the hourly wage should be around $22. So how do you somehow expect that people who should have a right to have a family and shelter and food, how are they going to raise their children? And the reality is they don't. You, because on that wage, you have to have two people working. And how do they care for their children? And when your children aren't cared for, what happens? Well, uh, they don't get educated. Oftentimes, they uh, hang around with the wrong people because they're living in a place where there's violence uh, or lack of opportunity. And then suddenly, it's shocking that those children don't thrive. So there are many issues here, and I'm sorry to go off on this diet. <laughs> no, it's beautiful. Well, no, what's, what's helpful is that you know we were just talking about can compassion be trained, and then I want to overlap this with the uh, the individual versus the collective. You know, if there are tribes today, there might be that we are in companies of ten to fifty people. We are in service organizations, or we're at churches, or we're at you know wherever we do collect ourselves. Uh, can, can a leader begin to be trained and then, inf- I guess, infuse uh, more compassion to turn the ship around of what you've just described? I mean, it won't happen overnight, but in a generation or two, could we question. change that mindset? Great question. No, I think it is. Uh, I think uh, that uh, there is ever-increasing data uh, to demonstrate that when um, you have leadership, that authentically believes in this concept, it actually has a profound effect on uh, creativity, productivity, shareholder value. It's fact. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are a number of case reports uh, from Harvard Business School and others uh, about this. I'll give you one really quick example. Uh, There's a a person whose first name I can't remember, his last name is Carnes with a C, and he's from uh, Australia. And he uh, ran a very large uh, corporate entity, and he decided to have an assessment of the company, uh, a 360 review, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. And the uh, people came back to him after this review, and they said, uh, well, we have to tell you a few things. One is you have the worst morale in your employees of any company we've ever uh, studied. And, uh, and the other was that um, people hate you and you're the worst uh, CEO we've ever studied. And, uh, and for a guy who uh, has those sorts of dynamics as to how he functions, what do you think his initial attitude was when he received this report? It was to fire the people. Yeah, okay. as a, I've been, I, I as a consultant. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Mark and I know many of those. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> but the interesting thing about this guy was that he went home and he was so angry about this and he told his wife and he said, can you believe these, what these people are saying about me? And he said, what do you think of that? And she looked at him and she said, they're right. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, how come you haven't said this to me before? And she said, I've been telling you this for 20 years. You just never listened. Fascinating. Fascinating. So he, he went on a personal journey, uh, got, in, got a coach, got into meditation, actually got into Buddhism. And uh, within two years, he had completely turned the company around. Not that it wasn't successful, but it was dramatically more successful. And what he admits to is that his whole life had been driven by fear, fear of being judged, fear of being not good enough, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, once he changed that narrative to leading with love and being kind to himself, it dramatically improved uh, how he interacted with others and made people feel safe. And as a result, uh, the company thrived. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the uh, Aristotle project at Google. Uh, this is a uh, company, of course, that is deeply involved with analytics. And uh, uh, they decided to study what makes a team successful and what makes a leader successful. And they spent $50 million over a number of years. You may not know that when Google started, and since its founders, if you will, were brilliant, but probably on some level uh, Aspergery, um, they believed that uh, the only metric for success was your grade point average and going to the best school. And in fact, they would hire employees who had to be in the top 15% of the class in, in uh, I think about 15 colleges. Otherwise you were unworthy. And as they started acquiring companies, uh, many of the people who were employed by or ran those companies did not fulfill the criteria. So they did this study. And what they found was that what do you, believe, what do you think the uh, association with success of a leader of a team uh, has to do with grade point average or what college you went to? Zero. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. How about that? But it's, uh, and, it's fascinating that they could actually study and prove it. You know, intuitively in our gut, we would think that, but they could prove it. And even domain experience had limited uh, relationship to success. So you don't have to be an engineer to lead an engineering team. And I've done that myself in different uh, roles. Uh, so what are the things that makes a successful team? One is uh, being authentic, mm. showing your vulnerabilities. Uh, be non-judgmental, uh, accepting the fact that people will failure, fail. Uh, so if they had asked me, and I could have answered that question before they ever did the goddamn study. Uh, <laughs> and, and Save them 50 million about, bucks? <laughs> yeah, about five minutes, and I could have pocketed $50 million. Uh, uh, but, but it just shows you, you know, how blind – uh, a lot of these people are. And in fact, uh, the nature of how Wall Street functions, unfortunately, rewards ruthless people. Because yes, it does. Yes, it, will, that's my background. And I will, it physically took me out. Yeah. 
because ruthless people can manipulate things and take advantage of situations so that they look like they're performing. And we've had innumerable examples of uh, this uh, demonstrated. And this is why we have a system uh, with gross uh, unfairness uh, that has resulted in almost a 700% increase in CEO pay over the last several decades uh, because uh, these people manipulate things to get rewarded. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's a statement, I can't remember it exactly, but it basically says, you know, if your success relies on you making certain decisions, uh, amazingly, uh, you always seem to make those decisions. As an example, in, in my profession, one of the things that I do is a lot of spine surgery, right? And we do spine fusions, which requires implantation of hardware. Well, <clears throat> if we do the operation, we get paid X. If we put the hardware in, we get paid about two or three X. And extraordinarily, uh, there seems to be a relationship between uh, making the decision to put hardware in and money. Mm. Right? And you talk to every one of these doctors and say, no, I'm an honest broker. I would never consider that. But every time Medicare, as an example, stops paying for an intervention, uh, then suddenly people stop doing the intervention. Because <laughs> right? So what typically happens is if there is a new type of hardware or implantable, Medicare pays a lot more for it because they're trying to assess um, actually the worth of it. And, uh, and oftentimes they'll go from paying a lot to suddenly paying very little or even saying, well, this is equivalent to not doing anything. We're not going to pay for it. As soon as they do that, the use of that goes down to essentially zero. And, and then the next new gizmo comes out, and there's, in fact, a subset of doctors who they just look out for the latest gizmo that pays the most, and that's the thing they're going to implant. And I hate to say that as a, a physician, but it's a reality. You know, these types of people and all humans uh, will repeatedly make decisions in their uh, favor and then justify it afterwards. And you talk to any CEO. And in fact, uh, 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 there's a book called Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. Mm -hmm. And uh, it gives innumerable examples, especially in the dictator class, of uh, these horrible dictators who've just done the most heinous things. And they'll say, well, you know, it really wasn't me. Uh, you know, uh, we had to do this to pervert, uh, preserve the stability of the state. Well, yes, I may have taken some money, like billions, and put it in a Swiss bank account, but I had to, you know, I had to protect things. And the killing of those people, well, it really wasn't me, it was these other people who made these decisions. Because the fact of the matter is, if you can look at yourself in the mirror and see your true self, oftentimes you don't like what you see. So, and you get this cognitive dissonance. So you create a justification mechanism for uh, why you should be paid $100 million or $1 billion a year to do something and why you're, uh, and, and even then people should appreciate that's not even enough for your greatness to be paid that right. amount. And it's extraordinary. And I don't care what amount it is. I mean, and I have to tell you, having interact with a number of extraordinarily wealthy people, every one of them thinks they're middle class. And the reason is, is because instead of looking down and going, oh my God, I am so blessed, I have so much gratitude, it's amazing, I have an obligation to humanity, they look up at the other guy and they go, 
God, I'm only flying a Learjet, and he has a G650. God, that's I'm, I'm the at least as good as he is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, to, pick uh, up, to, to, to pick up on your personal experience, though, I mean, I, Kirsten was talking about her Wall Street experience. I certainly, as a manager or leader and executive, you know, didn't always show that vulnerability. Uh, you know, you want to be right. Uh, but I think about the roles that you have. I mean, you have to run a practice. You're running a department. You're running businesses. Uh, and you have to have performance reviews. You have to have board meetings where tough decisions are made. Uh, how do you try to to implement some of these practices in those tough, uh, you know, confrontational, rich environments? Well, uh, I try not to be confrontive unless I have to. Mm -hmm. I try to be very direct, and those are two different things. Uh, um, how I look at the world, and I have to say, this is probably not most people, is uh, I put myself in the other person's position. You know, there's a great quote by Wadsworth, which I can't completely recite to you, but basically it says, if you're able to look at the situation through another person's eyes, you will understand why they made the decisions they made. And uh, I think that uh, I always try to be eminently fair and to be understanding. Now, is that always rewarded? Not necessarily. Uh, but the vast majority of times it is. Uh, I don't think, you know, a lot of people when you use the term compassion think that that is a way you are just weak and you allow people to run over you. And this exactly. is, is completely uh, a, a false narrative. Uh, actually, compassion as an example is, you know, I have fired people. And, you know, they have certain criteria. They get a performance review. And if they haven't improved, the best thing I can do from them as a manager or leader is to fire them because they're not performing and they've been given a very strict set of guidelines. And if they can't meet them, then they need to find another job. And somehow pampering them or uh, making them feel good uh, isn't in their best interest. Uh, so I think you can be incredibly powerful and still be thoughtful and kind. Uh, so I have not had any problem doing that, but I have sometimes been overly thoughtful and generous by some people's criteria. As an example, when I left a company that I had run where I had been the CEO, I felt that some people had not benefited um, from the success of the company in terms of what the board had given them. So when I left the company, I handed out $10 million of my own equity to people I thought deserved it. Did I have to do that? Absolutely not. Uh, but uh, that was my own worldview. Now, the reality is there are probably not many people who would have done that, right? Right. Uh, plus, as you know from my book, uh, I was um, bankrupt and uh, ended up giving $30 million away to charity uh, in the form of stock that I had in a company that had not yet gone public. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can say, well, that was stupid. And in fact, probably 100% of my friends said that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, for me, uh, my view was that uh, I had made some obligations in terms of charitable contributions. I wanted to live up to them. 
And uh, my worst day was to be a neurosurgeon getting paid 99.9% more than um, people in the world. So if I may ask, I just I, I want to take us all the way back. I believe you were 12 when you met your earth mother, right? Right. I, mean, I would consider that a real fork in the road, as Mark and I talk about. And just from, you know, the little bit I know of your story, that was a moment where somebody showed kindness and compassion and yet still held you to a higher standard for yourself to teach you what that looked like. Can you share a little bit about that? Because it seems to translate through your whole life. Well, um, as I alluded to a little bit earlier, I grew up in a very difficult circumstance. And at the age of 12, uh, I was filled with anger, hostility, despair, hopelessness. And uh, uh, I didn't believe I had a future. And what happened was I actually uh, one day rode my bike to a, a far away from where I normally would and encountered a strip mall. And I had had an interest in magic. And in the strip mall was a magic store. And I went into the magic store and the owner wasn't there, uh, but his mother was there. And, you know, I talked about this uh, Aristotle study done by Google. Here was a woman and it turns out she's uh, sitting in the store managing it because her son who runs the store uh, is doing an errand. She knows nothing about magic. But here's a woman who, first of all, greets me uh, uh, with a radiant smile. Mm -hmm. And a smile can uh, uh, change everything. Uh, and uh, she communicated with me in a fashion that made me feel like um, she was talking to me as an equal. She wasn't looking down at me like a 12-year-old or, frankly, uh, by my dress, probably a perception that I was poor. She simply looked at me as another human being. But what happens in that environment? It shifts you from your fear mode to, again, your parasympathetic nervous system, this rest and digest mode. You feel safe. This is the concept of psychological safety. This is what the Google studies show. When you create an environment of psychological safety, it unleashes creativity, productivity. And so suddenly I was able to communicate with her without fear, without being ashamed, without hiding my situation. And she responded and she uh, reached out and said, you know, I really like you and uh, I'm here for another six weeks. And if you uh, come, uh, I think I could teach you something that could really help you. And this was before the concept of meditation or mindfulness was prevalent in the West and certainly before the concept of neuroplasticity. But what she taught me over the six-week period was a mindfulness practice, a practice of self-compassion, and understanding that the negative narrative in my head uh, was a false narrative, it wasn't truth, and that it was created because negative things stick to us uh, more than positive. And when you hear a negative thing, uh, you have a tendency to put it deep in your subconscious and you repeat it. And so she taught me how to change my narrative from I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I have no future, to one of positivity and saying that I deserve love, I deserve to be cared for, I deserve success. And once that started happening, I also realized that how I interacted with the world uh, was based on fear and anger. And when I was able to change my own narrative, then I saw the world in a different way. 
And what I tell people is, and we talked about sort of how we're able to intuit others' emotional states, when I changed how I viewed the world, the world changed how it viewed me. And also, I was able, and she taught me a concept of um, manifestation of one's intention. And this is putting your uh, intention in your subconscious, and that allows you to position yourself where you can respond to things that are going on in your environment, which you may not have normally attuned yourself to. And so that series of lessons had a profound, profound uh, effect on me. Uh, it allowed me to believe I could go to college. It set up the situation where I was able to attend college, able to believe that I could apply to medical school and uh, become a physician. Obviously, I became a neurosurgeon, which, of course, you know, is a highly competitive field. I became a professor at Stanford. Uh, at one of the major universities, of course, and then I became a successful entrepreneur, uh, being CEO of a company that went public for $1.2 billion, and then, of course, uh, created the center with the Dalai Lama as a primary benefactor, and also, as you were kind enough to mention, this book that I wrote called Into the Magic Shop, a New York Times bestseller, actually now in 41 languages. Oh, so uh, I've been very blessed but the blessing is actually a manifestation of an understanding that within each of us, we have extraordinary power that we just don't recognize within ourselves. And oftentimes we'll give that power away to this false narrative about us not being good enough or saying, if only this could have been the case, everything would have been okay. And when you release this power within yourself, you can do anything whether it's uh, my story, but everyone uh, has this within themselves. And to change that narrative, by, uh, one can do it by simply going through a mindfulness practice, by practicing self-compassion. Because when you practice self-compassion, I tell people, it's like suddenly you're starting to wipe clean a window that was opaque and you couldn't see with clarity. Once you're kind to yourself, you start seeing the world a different way, and you understand everyone is suffering. Everyone has a story, and everyone uh, deserves to be heard, and everyone uh, should have the opportunity uh, to be their best selves, and we should try to create an environment that allows people to thrive. Yeah. That's very powerful. Well, we really appreciate your time uh, today uh, and sharing both the uh, sort of practices, but also the personal insights of, of how you've put those into your own uh, world. So really appreciate you sharing that. I know uh, your, your center, your department has some great programs coming up uh, to help train uh, the rest of us. Where could we go to find out more about those? Uh, you can go to ccare, ccare.stanford.edu. Uh, there are also resources on the website associated with the book, intothemagicshop.com. Uh, and you can also find uh, information at jamesrdodymd.com. Uh, so a plethora of things. And uh, there are a number of podcasts out there also, uh, in addition to this one, uh, which I talk yes. about different things, uh, uh, fear versus love, uh, the power of compassion to change, lo change lives, and a whole variety of other things.
Wow. Yeah, well, that's it's just terrific. Well, we can't thank you enough. And, uh, you know, Kirsten and I, this idea that your potential is inside you, you need the right environment. This is what Intellicy uh, is all about. And the fact that we have uh, leaders uh, really working on this, it's, it's gratifying to know that we could change the world by changing one career at a time. Yeah. And, and the thing is, each of us has the opportunity every day to make one person's life better. Mm, I love that. Wow. What a great way to well, that's, What a great That's a great way to, great call to action. Yeah. So uh, our guest has been uh, Dr. James Doty, founder and director of the Center of Compassion, Altruism Research and Education at Stanford University. He's also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Into the Magic Shop, a neurosurgeon's quest to discover the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. So thanks again for being with us. We really appreciate it. Many blessings. That was wonderful. Yes, thank you. Uh, and, and thanks to our engineer, Scott, uh, yes, over John. at TriPoint Studios. We really appreciate your, uh, your technical expertise in bringing this story alive. So until next time, here's to your IntelliKey as you grow as a leader in your own life. Bye now. Thank you. Take care. You've been listening to IntelliKey Leadership Stories with your hosts, Kirsten Gouldy and Mark Stenson. Connect with us on LinkedIn or visit our websites, www.pureintelliKey.com and www.mark-stenson.com. IntelliKey Leadership Stories is produced by TriPoint Studios, copyright 2020. Views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the TriPoint Studios or its other members. You can find this and other TriPoint podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening to IntelliKey Leadership Stories.